welcome to Ghost Riders Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know if you were a salad green, what salad green would you be? I would be sunflower sprouts. I hope you guys are ready for a huge helping of meatloaf to add to your Thanksgiving dinner because that's what I'm talking about today. I recently have read Meatloaf to Hell and Back, the autobiography with David Dalton. I kind of gather here that Meatloaf possibly dictated this story to David Dalton and David Dalton put it to writing or maybe it was a collaborative. I'm not really sure, but I also bought the biography, which I have not finished, to cross-reference some of the events. And there's so much I want to say about this book and Meatloaf in general, but I'm going to try to stay focused today about his success with Jim Steinman, how they went from getting rejected wholeheartedly to emphatically accepted by the public. It came to a point where Jim Steinman wasn't getting recognized for the work that he put into the album, Bad Out of Hell. Everyone recognizes Meatloaf, but no one seems to know who Jim Steinman is, myself included, until I read this book. And as it turns out, I have been a Jim Steinman fan my entire life and just never knew it, which I think he would be rolling in his grave to hear that, but it's true. One of my favorite songs as a kid was Celine Dion's It's All Coming Back to Me Now, and I know Leah would disagree on this, but it was beautiful. What I liked most about it is it seemed very different than anything I was hearing on the radio. Not only was it long, but it seemed to tell this story through the music. As it turns out, Jim Steinman wrote that song. He and Meatloaf both have theatrical backgrounds. Jim was very hesitant to work with Meatloaf, but Meatloaf kept putting pushing for it, and so finally, reluctantly, Jim Steinman did, but the record companies keep turning them down. And just to kind of put a timeline on everything, Meatloaf and Jim Steinman both were born in 1947. Jim died in April of 2021, and then nine months later, Meatloaf died in January of 2022, so very recent. And I had listened to Meatloaf a little bit as a kid, but he never really piqued my interest until just within the past year or so. That's pretty much all I've been listening to lately, and that's what prompted me to even get this book. It's almost an obsession. I just wanted to know more about this man. Jim and I were rejected by every record company in the world, four times at least. We didn't make demos. We went into recording company offices and sang live. You can't demo these songs. You either have to record them or do them live. These meetings were pretty much in and out of there in 20 minutes. Without fail, they'd turn us down. As we'd walk down 6th Avenue after these meetings, I'd rage on to Jim. These fucking record company guys are so set in their ways. I can't even imagine how many people they've turned down. Their strategy always is to create a formula, make a mold, and then stamp out replica bands. They're really in the packaging business, they just don't know it. Jim would just laugh. Thinking back on it, one of the reasons we got rejected so frequently was our attitude. These people were used to seeing musicians crawl into their offices all humble and obsequious. They liked to see you vulnerable and at their mercy. They wanted to be the ones in charge. We didn't come in going, oh golly, oh gee whiz, please sir, what do you think? When we went to record companies, people would invariably ask me why I was hanging around with that weird guy. That weird guy being Jim Steinman. And what are these songs, they'd say. These are not rock songs. Nobody wants a 10-minute song. Well, everything we did was 10 minutes long. 
These songs are too long. You need to cut them down to three minutes, blah, blah, blah. I remember people telling me I should be singing R&B, not this Broadway musical stuff. But Jim, bless his twisted little heart, kept saying, the last thing you should be doing is R&B. All they're telling you is the obvious. We know you can do R&B. His attitude was always, let's go against the obvious. If you go against the obvious, it's going to be much stronger. The reason I believed him was the reaction we got from the song More Than You Deserve every time we'd go out live. When we performed at Reno Sweeney's, we did Bad Out of Hell. You took the words right out of my mouth for crying out loud and heaven can wait. Maybe 35 minutes as an opener for Genya Raven. People went crazy. After the second night, Genya said, I can't go on right after you guys. You've got them all in a big tizzy. She started waiting half an hour before going on to let people have a few more drinks and calm down. Even way back then, I knew from the reaction that people would love Bat Out of Hell if it ever got released. Jim and I finally got an appointment with Clive Davis, who was the head of Arista Records at the time. At about 9.30, 9.45 in the morning, the phone rings. Hello? Meatloaf? The voice said. This is Clive, he says. Listen, so sorry, but I've been called out of town. I know we had a meeting this afternoon, but I'm going to have to cancel our appointment today. I was shaking. All I could say was, yes, sir. Okay, sir. I called our manager, David Sonnenberg. He says to me, what do you mean he canceled? I just spoke to him two minutes ago. You guys are on for four o'clock. Be there. I was confused. Did Clive Davis have amnesia? Had I imagined the whole thing? What we usually did if we had a meeting was meet an hour earlier at a rehearsal room and warm up. I'd sing and Jim would play for about half an hour and then we'd go to the meeting. Clive Davis's people first put us in a freezing air-conditioned room. I'm going, my throat, my throat, it's too cold in here. Then the son of a bitch made us wait an hour and a half. I kept saying to Jim, let's go, let's just get out of here. And Jim goes, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Finally, we head for Clive's inner office. We sing maybe two songs, that's as far as we get, and he's already shaking his head. What are you two doing? He turns to me and he says, you're an actor. Actors don't make records. You're like Ethel Merman. You're like Robert Goulet. Ethel Merman and Robert Goulet don't make rock records. You belong on a Broadway stage. Now I'm really pissed. But here comes the kicker. He turns to Jim Steinman and says, Do you know how to write a song? Do you know anything about writing? If you're going to make records, it goes like this. A, B, C, B, C, C. I don't know what you're doing. You're doing A, D, F, G, B, D, C. You don't know how to write a song. And then he starts really laying into Jim. Have you ever listened to pop music? Have you ever heard any rock and roll music? And Jim, at that time, knew every record ever made. Jimmy is a walking rock encyclopedia. He knew everything, even obscure stuff like the B-side of Surf and Bird. And Clive Davis had the nerve to sit there and tell him, you don't know anything about rock. You should go downstairs when you leave here, go to Colony Records and buy some rock and roll records. Jimmy just kind of laughed it off. That's his nature. He finds insults funny. I don't. We get down to the street, we're on Broadway around 57th Street, and I'm so caught up in my rage, I don't know that anyone else exists. I was so angry at this man that in the six o'clock rush in New York, I'm screaming towards the top of his building, fuck you, Clive, fuck you. That rejection was the one that sent me over the edge. I was no longer stoking the fire with coal. 
I was stoking the fire with kryptonite. I became bound and determined to prove all these idiots wrong. We spent most of 1975 auditioning the record Bad Out of Hell. In fact, we spent basically two and a half years going around playing songs for these people and being rejected. People at record companies hated it. They didn't just dislike it, they were incensed by it. I didn't fit their rock star mold and Jim didn't fit the standard pop writer role. It was as if we were aliens starring in It Came From The Theater. And then along came Todd Rundgren. When Todd heard the songs, he rolled on the floor laughing. I've got to do this album, he said. It's just so out there. Nobody else could figure out how to record these songs. People kept saying, well, how can you make a record out of that? Todd didn't even seem phased by it. No problem, he said. You just need a deal. Bat Out of Hell came out October 21st, 1977 on the Cleveland International label, which at that time was affiliated with Epic and CBS. And pretty much everybody at Epic Records hated the record. I mean really hated it. The head of marketing threw up his hands. I just don't get it, he said, and tossed it into the ocean off Cape Cod. As Bad Out of Hell was being released, the record company asked me who I wanted to open for. I'm not an opening act, I told them. It wasn't arrogance, it was self-preservation, because I'd already been in a band that opened for Rare Earth, and my shenanigans eventually got me thrown off that tour. It didn't work with Genya Raven either. You got to open for somebody, they insisted. We'll book you into Chicago. We're going to have you open for Cheap Trick. Okay, fine, whatever you say. We went into Cheap Trick's stomping ground, their home turf. Bad Out of Hell had just been released. Nobody knew what the hell we were doing. Jim Steinman had had these costumes made that were the most bizarre things in the world. What Carla DeVito was wearing was so extreme, I've just blocked it out of my brain completely. And Carla DeVito, she isn't the original female vocalist on the album, but she did tour with them because Ellen Foley, the original female vocalist, couldn't. Jim got us all in these funny get-ups and everything, floppy hats that hang off to the side, and he's going, it's great, it's so great. I wasn't so convinced. Jim, what is this? This is not going to work. Jim, however, is thrilled. To him, it's full-blown theater. He's incredulous that I should even question what he's doing. What are you talking about? He says, this is going to blow them away. If they don't blow us away first, I think. Jim looked at Bat as theater, and to a certain degree, I did too. Rock with theatrical elements, sure, but it's got to be a rock and roll show first and foremost. If we go out there trying to be some off-Broadway theater of the absurd, we're going to fall flat on our faces. But I let him do what he wanted. What did I know? So we walked on stage to this cheap trick crowd. Nothing but cheap trick fans as far as the eye can see. And nobody applauded. Not one clap. Nothing. I walked out and got in front of the mic, and right then a guy in the front row stood up and said, Fuck you, you fat son of a bitch. Get off the fucking stage. And I looked at him. I pointed at him the way I do, gave him the meatloaf face, and I said, Okay, you asked for it. We started to play, and by the time we'd finished the first song, we opened with Bat, they were still booing and hollering and giving us the finger. And the guitar player passes by me. I've got my back turned, and he says, Meat, this is bad, man. We should just get off the stage while we still can. I looked at him and said, Shut up. We agreed to play for 45 minutes, and you better just start fucking playing. That's my basic instinct. By the third song, they're still freaking out, standing up and jeering, yelling, Fuck you! Boo! You jerks! About 30 minutes into it, things are cooling out. They didn't exactly like it, but by the end of the show, nobody was calling me a fat fuck either. I consider that a victory. 
Times had changed, and this was typical of the 70s. In the 60s, nobody booed anybody. You might not get such big applause, but you had acts of very different stripes all playing together. Richie Havens playing with The Who. You had Ravi Shankar sitting there playing the sitar with Blue Cheer. People didn't even boo Yoko. In the 60s, you just didn't go there. It didn't make any difference what the band was playing. People would just sit and enjoy the music. Nobody said, fuck you, I'm going to kill you. It took me years to get over that show. A couple of days later, we pulled up for sound check at a club in New Jersey and saw all these people standing around just hanging out. I was wondering who they'd come to see. I go inside and everybody is staring at me. What do you have going on this afternoon? I ask. Hell man, they say. Those kids are here to see you. What? They were lined up in the afternoon. Bat Out of Hell had been released two days before the Cheap Trick concert. By the time we got to New Jersey, just two days after that disastrous concert, everything had changed for us. The place was mobbed. The feeling was overwhelming, of being at the edge of some huge wave about to break. There's a photograph of me on the back of Dead Ringer, my hair all down and me all sweaty, which was taken at the second show of that Jersey gig. That picture to me is a picture of the night we made it, a moment of pure, unadulterated amazement and joy at a little club in Jersey. Soon we were a success, in New York and Cleveland, but nothing much was happening anywhere else. You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth was the first single off the album, and it wasn't doing what everyone thought it would. There was some resistance at the record company, of course, because it was too theatrical. They didn't know what to do with it. But we were out there doing live shows and everyone was loving it. And we were selling records wherever we performed. Slowly, it started getting more and more airplay on the FM stations, but the moment when it crystallized for the record company was in New Orleans when CBS had its convention in January 1978. Walter Yetnikoff was there, all of CBS and Epic, plus Billy Joel, Elvis Costello, Cheap Trick, Mother's Finest, Ted Nugent. We were the last act to go on. I was so into crying out loud that when I finished, I had my eyes closed. Now normally when you finish a song, the audience will start applauding, but the room was silent. It felt like an eternity. I'm standing there with my eyes closed, expecting applause, but hearing absolutely nothing. Two or three seconds after the song is over, there's still nothing. I had enough time to think this one thought. They've all left. That's how long it was. On stage, a moment is eternity. I'm sure my face showed real fear during those few seconds of, oh my god, they simply left. Because that song is a nine minute song. We start with piano and voice, and then the band comes in, and it ends with piano and voice. The ending itself is a good two minutes of piano and voice. At the end, I take the mic away, and it's just my voice cutting through the theater. And then as I started to open my eyes to see the awful truth, the room exploded. They stood up and started to scream. They were yelling and whistling and climbing on chairs. There were people standing in the middle of the big round dinner tables, all for a damn ballad. That night and singing the national anthem at the 1994 All-Star Game are the best moments of singing I've ever had in my life. Of course, when you've got them to that point, you don't let them go. You don't stop and talk to them. You punch them in the head. I turned around and I looked at the band. Johnny Be Good was all I said. The lyrics fitted the situation perfectly, deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans. As soon as we began playing Johnny Be Good, people started running up onto the stage. 
There must have been 200 people on the stage while the band was still playing. There are pictures of the audience at this moment taken from the stage looking out, and you can see the whole place standing on the tables and all these people on the stage and the band all looking like deer caught in the headlights. We were that stunned. They went crazy, completely berserk. Billy Joel was standing on a table. They were throwing chairs. They did something like $40,000 damage to that room. They told me that the only other person who ever made such a splash at a CBS convention was Janis Joplin, which is the best compliment I've ever had in my life. And that night set the wheels in motion. Whether they hated Bat Out of Hell with a passion or not, they finally got behind it. When I had first read the Cheap Trick concert debacle, I really admired Meatloaf for not getting off the stage like the rest of the band was wanting to do, which I don't blame them, especially when there is a huge crowd of people. They're very hostile. And I think it says a lot about Meatloaf. By seventh grade, he was, if memory serves, about 240 pounds. He was close with his mother, but his father was a raging alcoholic. At one point, his father actually tried to kill him with a butcher knife. So he's always been in these situations where most of his attention was negative. People are telling him he's fat. He's like, I get that. I know that. That I'm fat, but it's just the first observation people make of him and they don't really keep it to themselves. When he's on stage, he can become somebody else and he really liked that. And it was such an intense thing for him that when he finished a performance, instead of going out and partying, he actually went to his hotel room alone because he needed time to shed those characters. He has no aptitude for music. He's often out of tune or out of key, but he always has had faith in himself and he brings this certain energy that the crowd just loves. And so while I've never seen Meatloaf live, and I definitely can't now that he's dead, but he was performing on the late night show with David Letterman. Meatloaf is so intense. He had just cut off his final note and then suddenly David Letterman's there and you can tell that he still has this intensity surrounding him. And so when he turns to David Letterman, David Letterman kind of lurches back or you could just tell that he's a little uncomfortable. I think they go on a break and after the break, David Letterman says to the audience, I'm not gonna lie, I was pretty afraid of that man just a little bit ago. And then they kind of joke about it and et cetera, et cetera. But if I'm feeling this kind of energy just in watching the video, I can't even imagine what it would be like to see this man live. It would be an experience. There's so much I want to say about meatloaf. I actually had trouble condensing what I wanted to talk about. The easiest thing will be to break it up into different episodes. Cooper has been calling me the meatloaf historian. I'm just cornering people and spewing out meatloaf facts at any opportunity. So if you'd like to email us, then please do so at gridersanon at gmail.com. And you can always visit our Facebook page at Ghost Writers Anonymous. We'll catch you guys next week.